If not now, when? If not us, who? Great question. We'll try to answer it on today's broadcast. Well, I don't know why I came here tonight. That's why. I got the feeling that something ain't right. No, it ain't. I'm so scared in case I fall off my chair. And I'm wondering how I'll get down the stairs. Clowns to the left of me, jokers to the right. Here I am, stuck in the middle with you. Yep. From Pacifica Radio in Los Angeles, this is the broadcast as heard on KPFK 90.7 FM in LA. Up in Oregon on the Central Coast on KYAQ and in Cottage Grove on Queso. In Lancaster, Pennsylvania on WLRI, Maui, Hawaii's KAKU. Columbus, Ohio's WGRN in Palinville, New York on WLPP. Grand Rapids, Michigan's WPRR. In New Orleans on WHIV, Gallup, New Mexico's KNIZ, Concord, New Hampshire's WNHN, Fayetteville, Arkansas's KPSQ, up in Seattle on KODX. We're talking about you today, Seattle. Red Bluff and Redding, California's KFOI, Round Mountain, California's KKRN, Minneapolis, St. Paul's AM 950, KTNF. We also stream coast to coast and around the globe every single day. On the Internet, on the Progressive Voices Channel, Netroots Radio, Indie Media Weekly, FYI Nation, NicoleSandler.com, Radio Free Brooklyn, GDPR, Revolution 99, Workforce Rising, and Detour Talk, Blanketing Planet Earth five days a week. I'm Brad Friedman, your friendly investigative blogger, journalist, troublemaker, muckraker, all-around swell fellow, says me, from bradblog.com. Thank you very much for joining us today. We have a lot to get to, as usual, as as is the case now, just over one week before the uh, crucial 2018 midterm elections are uh, completed, at, at least as the voting will be completed. It is already underway now. Then the counting nightmares begin. But for now... Yes, we got a lot to cover along those lines today, but I need to start here. They got him, as they say. The huge Donald Trump fan said to have been behind the mailing of pipe bombs to about 10 different top former and current elected officials and intelligence officials and a number of celebrities and media organizations, all of whom had been vilified as enemies by Donald Trump in recent months and years. The man said to have been behind those attempted attacks was arrested in South Florida on Friday. 56-year-old Cesar Altieri Sayok Jr. Funny, that name doesn't sound Muslim <laughs> or Mexican. No. Hi, Desi Doyen. Hi. That man, uh, Mr. Sayok, was charged with uh, by the Justice Department with five federal crimes. He faces up to 58 years in prison if convicted. Sayok is said to have had a lengthy criminal history dating back to the early 90s, including threatening to use a bomb, according to a 2012 bankruptcy petition filed in Miami. Uh, apparently, he resided, at least at the time, at his mother's home. He appeared to post frequently in Facebook groups like the American Trump Party and Vote Trump 2020. 
Throughout the 2016 presidential campaign, that account shared news stories from Breitbart, the right-wing fake news outlet, uh, video clips from Fox News, the other right-wing fake news outlet, uh, and uh, posts from pages like Handcuffs for Hillary. That same year, the account included numerous photos and videos of the man, uh, a registered Republican, for example, at a Trump campaign rally, wearing a red Make America Great hat again. That, according to The New York Times, he's also seen in photos at political rallies holding CNN suck signs, not unlike the one seen on his decal-covered white van that was towed away not long after his arrest on Friday. That van included photographs uh, on these stickers of President Obama, Hillary Clinton, and others targeted by the bombing spree over the past week. They had uh, crosshair targets over them, which frankly should have been enough to have had this guy detained and questioned long ago, it seems to me. I've got a lot more that I need to cover, that I need to have time to cover today, and everyone else is sort of focusing on this, obviously, this arrest today, which... Attorney General Jeff Sessions did not describe as terrorism, as far as I can tell. No, as far as the uh, the press conference, as much as I was able to watch of it, of uh, Attorney General Jeff Sessions announcing the arrest, he did not ever at any time mention the words domestic terrorism. He called it, quote, political violence. I'll just note uh, for now, uh, for the record, that additional explosive devices were discovered also on Friday, uh, above and beyond the 10 or so that were already sent, that we've already covered. Uh, those uh, packages were to additional perceived enemies of Donald Trump, including Senator Cory Booker of New Jersey and former Director of National Intelligence James Clapper. We discussed some of the wingnut conspiracy theories on yesterday's show, which were almost immediately circulated by Republicans, including folks on your mainstream, on our public airwaves like Rush Limbaugh and Fox News's Lou Dobbs. These conspiracies were came out almost as soon as the attempted mail bomb spree came to light in recent days. And I mentioned that I suspect the right, as soon as this guy is captured and if he's found to be a Donald Trump fan, which is clearly the case, um, that they will soon begin saying, oh, he was a patsy. He was set up by Democrats. He didn't do it. We'll see. Just guessing that that will begin any moment, but we'll see. Uh, but when talking about some of those conspiracies about this from the right yesterday, I mentioned a Twitter thread from Vox.com's David Roberts explaining why those conspiracies were necessary for Republicans to get themselves off the hook for this. David Roberts will be joining me in a little bit. We were going to have him on today to speak about something completely different, and we will do that, but we'll also get his quick thoughts on Friday's news of the arrest of this man. In a statement today prior to the arrest, actor Robert De Niro, who had been targeted by the bomber, said, quote, I thank God no one's been hurt, and I thank the brave and resourceful security and law enforcement people for protecting us. There's something more powerful than bombs, he said. And that's your vote. People must vote, he said. You'll be shocked to learn I agree with Mr. De Niro. <laughs> uh, and to that end, uh, before David Roberts joins us, um, about one of the important initiatives on the ballot up this uh, on the ballot up this uh, this year up in uh, in Washington State where he lives, I want to hit a few voting related stories. Some good news, others not so much. 
Uh, not so much at all in some cases uh, from over the past 24 hours. Let's start in Tennessee, where several days ago on the broadcast, we covered the fight between the um, Tennessee Black Voter Project and local Shelby County, Tennessee officials. That's the uh, urban Democratic stronghold of Memphis as the Tennessee Black Voter Project was trying to figure out why thousands of voter registrations that they had turned in to Shelby County had been rejected by election officials. Apparently for what were minor errors or omissions, this amid the very tight U.S. Senate contest to fill the seat being vacated by Republican U.S. Senator Bob Corker. The election between former popular Democratic governor out there in Tennessee, Phil Bredesen, against his uh, opponent, Republican Congresswoman Marsha Blackburn, which is likely to come down to votes out of Shelby County. Well, we've got a bit of good news there. A state court judge in Tennessee ruled that Shelby County must let voters whose registrations were stalled Due to what they claim to be incomplete information, those voters must be allowed to vote with regular ballots on Election Day, not provisional ballots as had been planned by Shelby County, but regular ballots on Election Day once those voters show up and any deficiencies uh, in their uh, registrations are corrected. That may be done at the polls up through Election Day. The NAACP had joined the Tennessee Black Voter Project in bringing the lawsuit. Election officials who say they will appeal the ruling by the judge complain. Really? Yes, of course. They complain that letting those voters vote regularly on Election Day will make the county vulnerable to voter fraud. That, according to the commercial appeal in Memphis. So that fight continues, but some theoretically good news there. Less good news in Georgia, where, you know what, if we had a real Department of Justice in this country, damn near the entire state at this point would be taped off as a crime scene by now. I'm not kidding. If you've listened to broadcast for even 15 or 20 minutes over the past month or so, Uh, You'd probably understand what I'm talking about here as Republican Secretary of State Brian Kemp, who is now overseeing his own election for governor against African-American Democrat Shelley Abrams. He is using every trick in the GOP voter suppressors playbook to try and steal this thing in the great peach state at this point. I have never seen anything quite like it, to be frank, which is why we have been covering it. So and I've seen a lot. But that's why we've been covering this so much in recent weeks on this show. As you know, if you've listened, voting rights advocates had a court victory there in recent days with a federal judge finding that thousands of absentee ballots that had been rejected due to uh, signatures that partisan officials claim do not match the signatures on file with the voters uh, uh, voter registration records. The judge found those may not be rejected without contacting voters to give them a chance to cure any issues that these non handwriting experts who threw out their ballots are claiming. But there are um, potentially as well hundreds of that. And by the way, uh, Brian Kemp has said he's going to appeal that decision. 
Of course. Uh, there are also potentially hundreds of thousands who have been inappropriately purged from the rolls in Georgia and all voters at the polls, whether it's early voting or Election Day in Georgia, are forced to vote on 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems. So whatever the results are from those systems on Election Day, whether they're right, wrong, whether they have been hacked, changed, whether there's been an error Largely, we're going to have to accept those numbers. And now there is this. Last night from The New York Times, more than 4,500 vote-by-mail applications have gone missing. Missing in Georgia's DeKalb County, which is a place critical to uh, the uh, hotly contested governor's race in, well, just over a week's time. The missing applications uh, have further stoked fears of voter suppression and election mismanagement, according to the New York Times. Not sure if it's mismanagement. Uh, this may be exactly what they're intending. The Times notes that Georgia Democratic Party um, had delivered more than 4,700 vote-by-mail applications to county elections weeks ago, and now the county board tells the New York Times they only received 48. Not 4,800, not 48,000, but 48 after 4,700 had been turned in, according to the Georgia Democratic Party. On a phone call with state Democrats, county elections chair um, had acknowledged possible error. This uh, impact could be to thousands who may be disenfranchised in a county critical to the hopes of Stacey Abrams. Democrats encourage are encouraging those who are affected uh, to vote early in person or request vote by mail ballots again. Good luck with that. Getting them in time, making the request, getting the ballot and getting it back in time. Absentee ballots in Georgia have to be there by Election Day, before the close of polls, not dated by then, but they have to arrive by then, which means that folks who are out of state traveling, bedridden, could be without recourse here with these supposedly lost 4,700 ballots. As I said, Georgia should now be a crime scene, frankly. If Brian Kemp wins at this point, I do not see how that victory can ever be considered legitimate. I really don't, given the amount of voter suppression we have seen across that state. Even if he wins legitimately, I don't know how anyone could regard it as such after what he has done as secretary of state overseeing his own election as governor. We will never know if he won or not legitimately or otherwise. There is no way to know. There's nothing to count because it's all paperless. Well, it's uh, the election day and early voting is all paperless. The absentee ballots would have, you know, we could have counted those and we might have seen, oh, she won in uh, hand-marked paper ballots, but somehow he miraculously won by the machines. I don't know. Anyway, that's what we're looking at in Georgia. Let me do this. Let me take a quick break. Uh, come back with Texas. This story blew me away. It may blow you away as well. Trouble in Texas. Uh, that's uh, right after this. I'm Brad Friedman. This is the Bradcast. <laughs>
Five major corporations now control more than 80 percent of the media in the United States, but they don't control us. The Bradcast and the Green News Report are 100 percent independent, 100 percent listener-supported. But we can't do it alone. We need you. Please help us bring real facts to listeners at independent stations around the nation. You can make a difference. Support independent media. Drop by bradblog.com donate. That's bradblog.com donate. And thanks. The eyes of Texas are upon you all the little long day. Well, maybe that's the problem. The uh, eyes of Texas can't be upon uh, the way they cast their uh, votes in that state. Welcome back to the Bradcast. Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So, yes, then there is Texas. With this critical U.S. Senate race between incumbent Republican Ted Cruz and Democratic challenger Beto O'Rourke in a state which uses mostly 100 percent unverifiable touchscreen voting systems across much of the state. But uh, where much of this, the media has been excitedly reporting the huge turnout across the state, at least in parts of the state during early voting. Well, that's that's swell. That's fantastic. But then there is this. This from uh, KTRK ABC 13 in Houston last night. And this is just one of the reasons that I am no fan of straight ticket voting. Uh Okay, according to ABC 13, voters are reporting odd problems on both the Republican and Democratic side of straight party voting in Texas. Mickey Blake was one of the voters in those early voting lines in Houston earlier this week. She says, I hit straight Democratic ticket. And then she says she had expected all Democrats to come up on her screen. Again, they use these. They're not touchscreen machines. They're computer screens with a little wheel and a button instead of a touchscreen. But it's the same thing. Still 100 percent unverifiable. She had expected all Democrats to come up on her screen when she chose the straight ticket voting option. Especially, she said, Rep. Beto O'Rourke in the U.S. Senate race. But when she got to the last screen to review her choices, she noticed a problem. Blake said, it's all Democratic, except for Ted Cruz was checked in the U.S. Senate race. Mm -mm -mm. She backed up and she did it again and again. She said, I tried it a third time and the same thing happened. Whenever she went to the uh, confirmation screen at the end, luckily she happened to notice how many voters have not. The same thing happened, uh, according to ABC 13, to Cordell Hosea in Fort Bend County. She said, when I got to the end, I just so I just so happened that I glanced at the screen. I saw that Ted Cruz was selected as my senator. He, too, had voted with a straight ticket uh, Democratic selection, said, uh, according to uh, Cordell. That's two voters now. ABC 13 says this is not just a Democratic problem. Voters who select straight party Republican will end up, in some cases, I guess, unselecting Senator Cruz and wind up voting for no one. At least that's what uh, this ABC station says. Now, even if they are right about that, it is not uh, a 50-50 problem here. If their explanation is correct, if you do the math there, according to their description of this problem, of this failure with these voting machines, 
that they've had for almost 20 years out there where this problem has happened election after election. If you do the math, uh, an intended O'Rourke vote goes to Cruz on the Democratic straight ticket vote, while an intended Republican straight ticket vote uh, will see a Cruz vote go to nobody. So the O'Rourke vote goes to Cruz. The Cruz vote goes to nobody. In other words, for Democrats, O'Rourke would both lose a vote and one would be added for Ted Cruz. That's essentially a two-vote loss for Beto O'Rourke with this problem. Whereas on the Republican version of this problem, at least as described by ABC, Cruz loses one vote instead of two, as O'Rourke does. I hope that makes sense. Yes. Well, it made sense to me. Okay, good. Either way, ABC says officials say it's a rare issue that happens, but not to everyone. So, in other words, they know that it happens. They admit that it happens, but they've done nothing about it. Yes, that's right. They've done nothing about it. It's popped up across Texas often enough for the Secretary of State to put up a statewide advisory this week to every Texas election advisor. The uh, Secretary of State office calls it, quote, operator error. Aha! Blame the voter. Oh, man. That's what they always do. That'll do it. Fort Bend County Election Administrator John Oldham said we've heard from voters over a number of elections about this. He said it's been a problem that he has seen for years. He even told the secretary of state about it years ago, and it is still happening, according to the ABC outlet. But here's where Oldham and I part ways. Uh, He says, quote, it's not a glitch. Well, that's good so far. It's a user-induced problem. Damn it. He was so close. He was saying this was not a glitch. I thought he was (laughs) going to say it's a failure. Instead, he blamed the voters as well. Uh, But he adds that it's a user-induced problem that comes from the type of system that we have. So it's actually not a user-induced problem, Mr. Oldham. It's a system-induced problem. Thank you for making that clear. Stop using those systems and you won't have this problem anymore. Oldham said, I think both sides could be equally hurt. Well, that's wrong, Mr. Oldham, at least if the uh, report here from ABC is accurate. They say Oldham tells us that he recalls the problem for at least six years and says he talked to the Secretary of State more than once about the problem. It has not been fixed aside from signs provided by the Secretary of State to warn voters to check their selections. Well, that's fantastic. There's some signs on the wall if they notice those. Oldham said that he was, in fact, able to replicate this issue in his offices after multiple attempts. So this is something they have confirmed. This is something that happens. This has been happening for years. Texas knows about it, and they haven't done a damn thing about it other than, well, there's some signs. Sam Taylor at the Texas Secretary of State's office tells uh, 13 Investigates that the problem is, quote, user error and not something their office could fix. Taylor suggests a vendor could or should handle any upgrades, but that the state has not asked the vendors to do so. The vendors are talking about the voting machine vendors here. But if it's a user error, 
that the voting machine vendor could fix. That sounds like a machine problem. No, not a user error, but a machine error. Uh, but the state has not bothered to ask the vendor to fix this user error. That's so, just gross uh, mismanagement. Yeah, it's gross mismanagement and it's gross misreporting of the, of the story and of the blame here by the Secretary of State's office. Frankly, this is the Secretary of State's fault. If there's any user to blame here, it would be the Secretary of State. Uh, Oldham back in uh, Fort Bend County uh, told uh, ABC that it is most likely caused by voters simultaneously twisting the selection dial on these 100 percent unverifiable heart inner civic e-slate machines and then pushing the enter button at the same time. He says it may not even be purposeful, but done by voters in a rush who don't realize they're still interacting with both. Of course, it's not purposeful. They wanted a straight ticket for for the Democrats, and it ended up getting the Republican choice for the U.S. Senate. All right, I got my guest standing by, but please, please, if you're voting on one of these crappy, horrible, terrible, unverifiable machines that I've warned about for so many years, please, please check at the very end. Look closely at the confirmation screen before you hit cast ballot, especially, I guess, if you live in Texas where you think you're voting for a Democrat for the U.S. Senate, a Democrat who could win this year, but who may end up losing simply because uh, the voting machines that we've warned you about for so long have selected the Republican instead. Quick break, and we're back with David Roberts right here on the broadcast. I'm Brad Friedman. Don't touch that dial. Hey, this is Brad. If you haven't noticed by now, it's no easy feat finding facts, real facts, not alternative facts, over your public airwaves. We try to bring you real facts, truth, and clarity without fear or favor each and every day on the broadcast. But we need your help to do it, and that help is needed more now than ever. Please stop by bradblog.com donate today. That's bradblog.com donate and thanks. Headed for the open door. Tell me what you're waiting for. Look across the great divide. Soon they're gonna hear the sound, sound, sound. We come running. We'll see. Welcome back to the broadcast, Brad Friedman from bradblog.com. So aside from uh, candidate races, which get the bulk of media coverage, of course, there are a number of important initiatives on ballots around the U.S. in this year's ongoing midterm elections now underway, uh, which end on November 6th. Uh, one of those initiatives is up in Washington state where a price on carbon, a price on pollution a carbon tax or a carbon fee, as it's uh, now being described up in Washington state, is on the state ballot this year. Once again, after a similar effort failed back in 2016, as Vox.com's David Roberts writes this week. With President Donald Trump's administration dismantling federal climate policy as fast as it can, all eyes have turned to the states. 
with state leaders stepping forward with big promises and inspirational rhetoric, attempting to rally the domestic troops, build some momentum, and signal to the world that the U.S. isn't a lost cause. The grim reality, however, is that it's going to take a minor miracle for states to pick up all the slack, he writes. A lot of things need to break just the right way in a lot of states. This dramatic context has lent an added intensity to climate policy battles, even in smaller and lower emitting states. Every battle is now a proxy battle in the bigger war for America's climate soul. That fight, he writes, has now come to Washington state around Initiative 1631, the Carbon Emissions Fee Measure, which Roberts describes as a Green New Deal. And separately, at the same time, up in Canada, where they have a normal president, actually a prime minister, they are actually doing stuff for the entire nation that actually helps both the people and the world, if you can believe it including charging polluters to pollute, which they currently do for free, but which, as Roberts uh, writes in a separate piece this week, Prime Minister Trudeau is now staking his political career and re-election chances on in instituting a national price on carbon pollution. Here's part of Trudeau's announcement this past week. It is free to pollute, so we have too much pollution. We have so much of it. In fact, that the world's leading scientists told us a few weeks ago that we have just 12 years left to make a real change. This is about leadership. It is about seeing this problem and its solution for what it is. A moral and economic imperative to act. Putting a price on pollution is the best way to fight climate change. It is common sense that if you put a price on something you don't want, pollution, people will pollute less. And if there are costs associated with for, for average families, we will more than compensate those families for those costs. That was Prime Minister of Canada, Justin Trudeau, announcing a nationwide carbon tax this week. Here to discuss both the Washington State Initiative and the story up in Canada as the world wakes up to understand that fossil fuel companies can no longer pollute for free, at least without destroying civilization in the bargain, is the great David Roberts. He writes about politics, climate and energy, and much more at Vox.com these days. David Roberts, welcome back to the broadcast, my friend. Hey there, happy to be here. Listen, I know I uh, want to get to all this carbon tax stuff, uh, but I know you've been covering uh, the media and mostly right-wing reaction to the attempted mail bombings of uh, perceived Donald Trump critics in recent days. Uh, on Friday, 56-year-old Cesar Sayoc Jr. from South Florida was arrested and charged in uh, in this uh, mail bombing spree. His van was covered in pro-Trump, anti-Trump critic stickers. Uh, that was taken in with him. I cited your Twitter thread yesterday before the suspect was detained today on how the right wing immediately jumped to conspiracy theories about the whole matter. Uh, before we get to carbon taxes, uh, any hot take you want to quickly share on uh, this news uh, within the past few hours before we get to the stuff I really wanted to talk to you about today? <laughs> well, 
I don't know how hot the take is, but if you have a political party that indulges in conspiracy theories and violent fantasies and condones violence and winks at violence and jokes about locking up its political opponents and and calls their political opponents a crazy mob that anyone would be crazy to vote for, um, you know, sooner or later, there are crazy people out there who are going to respond to that language and do crazy things. And it is uh, 100% predictable, as is the uh, attempt to escape all responsibility. Uh, yeah, I, I had said yeah, on yesterday's show, the biggest surprise here is that this hasn't happened sooner, uh, frankly. Uh, I really think we're on a road that we're going to see it. I mean, I take no joy in saying this, but I would not be surprised at all if we see more and more of this. It does seem to be ramping up. Yep, that's what I fear as well. All right, uh, moving on to much more fun topics, carbon taxes uh, or price on pollution, as uh, Canadian Prime Minister Justin Trudeau described it this week. Uh, so to get this out of the way, uh, do I overstate the issue when I say that fossil fuel companies, as I said in the intro there, and their current ability to pollute for free may well destroy civilization? Is that a wild overstatement as you see it? Uh, no, that's uh, a a short and, and accurate summary of the IPCC report just released a couple of weeks ago. It's things have gotten bad enough now that that it's difficult to talk about it without sounding like a crazed person on the corner with a sandwich board. Yeah. But that's that's the cold facts. Yeah. Yes, and civilization the- is on the line. Yeah, and I think it's important that media start uh, making that clear when they talk about this. All right, so in layman's terms, David Roberts, uh, since I think it's a a phrase that many Americans still don't fully understand, but one that will become, I I think, very important for us to understand in the days and years ahead, um, even while it'll be wildly distorted by critics, I suspect, in the simplest terms— if you can, what is a carbon tax or a carbon fee, as it's being uh, called in uh, in Washington State on this initiative? We'll talk about. Well, it's it's interesting actually to contrast Washington, what Washington State is doing, and what Canada is doing, in that it illustrates uh, a simple point that I say over and over and over again, try to beat into people's heads, which is that a carbon tax. If all you know is the words carbon tax. You don't know anything, mm-hmm. right? Everything depends on how high is the tax and what gets done with the revenue. And depending on how you answer those two questions, you can have very, very different policies. So, for instance, Washington is going to implement a relatively low uh, fee on carbon emissions, and then it's going to take all the revenue from the fee and spend it on programs in the state that will enhance clean energy and clean water and clean forestry. So basically what Washington is doing is gathering a bunch of revenue from big emitters Mm -hmm. and spending it on uh, uh, programs to clean up the state. Whereas (laughs) what what Mm -hmm. Canada wants to do, and, and and to be clear here, just as a very quick background, Trudeau has been talking with the provinces for two years. He told them he's going to impose a tax on carbon. Mm-hmm. And he said, if you would like to develop your own system suited to your own circumstances, you may do so, but do it. <laughs> so most
it's only four provinces that are actually holding out and have not developed their own system. And it's those four provinces that Trudeau is imposing this carbon price on. Because the other provinces already have their own systems. But but the, what he's doing is imposing a relatively high tax and then giving all the revenue back to citizens as dividends, as dividend checks. So once a year, every citizen of these four provinces will receive their share of the revenue back. So it's a very different political theory and mm-hmm. a very different substantive policy, both of which loosely fall under the rubric of, of carbon tax. In that case, I guess they refer to it as a carbon tax and dividend, uh, where they, uh, right. they tax it and, and pay it back to the citizens. Well, let me even right. be let me even be more basic than that because I th- I still think people don't understand when we're talking about a carbon tax, a carbon fee, carbon tax and dividend. We're basically adding a tax to uh, to to what that is currently well, free. There's, again, there's uh, there's different ways of doing that too. But basically, what wonks have kind of settled on, and what most policies look like these mm-hmm. days that price carbon is, you take um, carbon, basically carbon fuels mm-hmm. wh- where they enter the economy. So at a at a gas or oil well, mm-hmm. right, where they're digging up carbon fuels, mm-hmm. or or imports of carbon fuels, mm-hmm. um, you know, or gas or, or or places where they take oil and refine it into gas. Basically, the they 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 take those places where carbon fuels enter the economy because you want a limited number of entities taxed, right? If you taxed everybody who emitted carbon, mm-hmm. it's literally everyone, and that would be very complicated. So what they're just doing is taxing those fuels where they in- enter the economy based on their carbon content. And so the idea is that that those refineries and, and, and oil companies and, and the ones subject to the tax will pass the tax along mm-hmm. down, you know, they'll raise prices, and eventually those prices will reach consumers in the form of carbon-intensive goods and services being a little bit more expensive. And so consumers will respond by shifting their consumption patterns away from carbon-intensive goods and services. That's the idea. That's the theory, that uh, if we tax uh, what we're already uh, burning, essentially, right now for free, if we put a price on, on, on burning that, then people will want to use less of it, in theory. Now, p- opponents say that the price that consumers are going to pay then for gas and electricity and pretty much everything else is going to skyrocket if there is a tax on carbon uh, if that was instituted, at least that's what we hear from the fossil fuel companies uh, who are really trying to help us out here. So is that uh, is that true? Will we pay a lot more for all of these things? Well, I mean, that that 100 percent depends on how high the carbon tax is. Right. I mean, you could you could tax carbon at a dollar a ton mm-hmm. of carbon or or a thousand dollars a ton. And those would look very different. So. The, the, the level of carbon fee that Washington uh, is discussing that, that that's on this ballot initiative is relatively low. Like you pay 20 cents more, I think, for a gallon of gas, something like that mm-hmm. at the beginning. So it's not going, going to uh, cripple the economy. I mean, these are even, even these small states, these are relatively large economies mm-hmm. and relatively small taxes. It's just not going to have a big macroeconomic impact certain high carbon emitting 
you know, businesses and, and, and people, i.e. generally wealthy people, will get, will get hit a little harder. But also, you can offset the impact of the, of, of the increased prices depending on what you do with the revenue. That's why how you use the revenue is so important. So in Canada, you're going to pay more in taxes, but then you're going to get this check back. And 70% of people in those four provinces are going to end up with more money in their pocket than they started with. Mm. In other words, their dividend check is going to be bigger than the increase in prices. Mm-hmm. So it's both um, incentivizing people to move away from carbon intensive goods and services, and it's serving as a progressive tax. It's, it's redistributing wealth from from wealthy people to, to poorer people. It's doing both of those at the same time. So that will have, you, you know, a positive right. financial impact on the poorest people. Whereas the one in Washington is different. Um, they're taking that money and they're, and they're spending it on programs. So, um, so, you know, there are, there are programs in place to shelter low income, uh, electricity rate payers, for instance, there are all kinds of mechanisms built into the ballot initiative in Washington to protect mm-hmm. the, the poorest people from the impacts. And also, 30%, remember, they're investing all the revenue in, okay. uh, in, in clean, you know, in cleaning the state up. And 30% of all that investment has to be targeted at vulnerable and low-income communities. So and that is also going to protect the lowest end of the, uh, the economic spectrum so from that- impact. So it's entirely possible to construct a carbon tax that doesn't hurt uh, low-income and middle-income people. It's entirely uh, as a policy matter, it's entirely possible. And so uh, the way they're structuring this initiative in Washington, it contrasts from Canada. Canada's giving the money directly back to the people Straight back. in a check. In Washington now, this initiative 1631, the, whatever is raised from this uh, revenue is going to go into initiatives that would, in theory, to help everyone, uh, but particularly those on uh, the lower economic scale, I guess. Now, what is different right. about initiative 1631 on the ballot in Washington State this year from Initiative 732 that was on the ballot in uh, 2016 in Washington State that was rejected by the people? Yes, uh, an interesting question that is difficult to answer quickly, but I'm going to valiantly attempt anyway. <clears throat> that policy, 732, mm-hmm. was a version of what Canada is doing, i.e. it was tax and dividend. It raised the tax and it would have given all the money back but instead of giving the money back as actual dividend checks mm-hmm. mailed to citizens, it would have given the money back by reducing other taxes. So mostly the, the sales tax, mm-hmm. Washington's horrible, regressive sales tax. Mm-hmm. It would have taken the revenue from carbon and used it to reduce the sales tax and then used some of it also to fund the uh, uh, Washington family's tax credit for the low-income tax credit. Mm-hmm. So that <clears throat> that initiative looked more like British Columbia's, but politically it turned out to be impossible because A, people don't it seems really like intuitively, your average person does not really understand why it makes sense to take a bunch of money away from people and then give it back to them. <laughs> I mean, economic economists can explain why it makes sense, mm-hmm. but but just like on its face, right. it's kind of difficult to explain, and it doesn't exactly fire people up. And what it turns out is, 
Um, and it didn't draw any support from low-income groups or, or uh, 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 communities of color mm-hmm. or labor groups or any of that stuff because they um, feel like they are uniquely vulnerable to climate change and mm-hmm. they want special attention. They want things done for them. If they're going to sign on to climate policy and fight for it mm-hmm. and lobby for it, they want to see the money. <laughs> they right. want to see what's in it for them. So that's why the, the strategy shifted in Washington is to this new uh, a policy which just raises the money and then literally hands it out to, <laughs> to these projects that are going to benefit these groups. It's very sort of old school liberalism, really. It's like old school tax and spend liberalism, you know, uh, um, uh, uh, of, of the like 70s vintage. Mm-hmm. So it'll be very interesting to see if that style of politics does better in this blue state than this sort of more economically sort of, you know, the tax and dividend is sort of supposed to appeal to conservatives and Republicans. It's supposed to be bipartisan. That's sort of the premise mm-hmm. of its backers. It didn't turn out to be bipartisan at all in in practice, but yeah. but the idea behind the policy was supposed to attract conservatives. This new policy in Washington just says, screw conservatives, they're not going to help, so we're not going to do anything for them. This is all about uniting the left, uniting every group in the left, and that's how we're going to push this over the finish line. And so it's a fascinating political test. It, and it is, and the, you can get the details uh, in, in a, a lengthy article that David wrote over at Vox.com this week, headlined, A Green New Deal is on the ballot in Washington State this year. Uh, sort of what I take away is, and, and, and you talk about this, uh, the difference between this year's initiative and the one two years ago was this, as I think you describe it, sort of puts the goodies up front. It says, here's yeah. what we're going to give you, uh, rather than the other one, which said, okay, we're going to tax you, but here's how we'll make it up to you later or something like that. So it's, yeah, it's more like, it's yeah. more like you'll, you'll turn out okay, but it'll be invisible. Like you right. won't notice it, but you'll turn out better. Whereas this is like the benefits are noticeable, right? They're tangible up front. Right. And you note also in this piece that Republicans are, are not, in fact, we're, we're talking, this is actually conservative fiscal policy because this doesn't actually increase government spending the way it's structured. And, and actually neither the one in 2016 or this one necessarily do that. And yet Republicans... Well, no, this one does. This, this one, one does. does. This one does. I mean, that's what it means to be revenue positive as opposed to re- revenue neutral. It does not automatically give the money back. It's going to spend okay. the money. But it, but that's government spending, right? I mean, this that's what I mean about this right. being old school liberalism. Like okay. it's going to raise that money and spend it discretion. You know, disc, it's going to use it as discretionary spending. But even when it was revenue neutral in uh, the the previous version, uh, where you know everything went back in, in some fashion to the right. to the people. Republicans did not come on board. Uh, It was a conservative, uh, so-called conservative economic principle. And you say that, um, you know, it sort of underscores the fact that these people who are called conservatives, or at least call themselves that and the media call them that, are not actually interested in conservative economic principles. They are, quote, motivated primarily by tribal hostility toward the left, which is exactly why... I don't call those people conservative. I think it does them a favor in calling them that. And the media does it all the time. They're Republicans, they're right-wingers, but they're not conservative. So this idea that somehow these uh, Republicans are going to come on board with any of this seems to be seems to me to be um, an entirely uh, 
it, it, never mind Washington State, is there any chance that we would see this across the country, that suddenly Republicans <laughs> well, would come on to this? This is the hottest topic. <laughs> I mean, this is the great debate, isn't it? I mean, if you want my, my take on it. I do. Um, <laughs> it is true that you're not going to get anything big and comprehensive and national without a little bit of Republican support. So mm-hmm. the question is, and, and of course, that's a long way off. No matter what your strategy is, that's probably a long way off. But what is what is your end goal there? What is the right way to get there? The way um, this previous initiative, the sort of tax and dividend, like let's appeal to conservatives, mm-hmm. let's not increase government spending, you know, this sort of persuade Republicans to come over is not working right. because it turns out they want to protect fossil fuel companies yep. and they hate Democrats. Yep. So they're not going to join in a bill that hurts fossil fuel companies and helps Democrats. They're just not like, it doesn't matter what economic principles you appeal to, but what you might be able to do is inspire them. <clears throat> the only way that ever really works in politics, which is fear, i.e. make climate politics, popular champion climate politics get the public on your side get the momentum of cultural you know uh, get the momentum of culture mm-hmm. behind you such that they have to sign on or else they get crushed <laughs> that that is the only thing that's ever going to bring any Republicans on board to this is if they're scared not to mm. and the way to make them scared not to is not to constantly hedge on your policy and hedge on your language in an attempt to attract these mythical moderate Republicans. If you want to make the politics of climate popular, you've got to go populist. You've got to really get out in front and be clear and be unequivocal and make it show people, right? We're telling people that this is an existential uh, threat, Mm -hmm. but what, who among their leaders in media or in politics is acting like it's an existential threat, right? right? Like, so if Democrats started acting like they really believe what these scientific reports say and really champion and stop apologizing for it and stop begging for the rights approval and, and get some momentum and some enthusiasm and some passion and intensity behind climate politics, that might scare some Republicans in swing districts over to their side. There's, that yeah. fright will bring them, not persuasion. There, there is a lot of pretending uh, on the right and among the companies. <laughs> I know they're spending millions of dollars to try to defeat this initiative up in Washington State, which I need to underscore because a week or two ago, uh, before they were sued this past week by the New York State Attorney General for years of defrauding shareholders by lying about climate change, ExxonMobil had pretended that they were really interested in a carbon tax program. They had donated $1 million to a group. A whole million? Yes, uh, <laughs> which they, of course, make literally every two minutes, ExxonMobil does. That's how much, they, and they got all of this fantastic publicity that ExxonMobil is getting into the fight for a carbon tax, and yet, I should note, they didn't, when they had the chance, if they really believed in it, they had a chance in 2016 to support the carbon tax initiative in Washington State. They did not. Are they jumping in to show us how they're uh, really behind this effort up there in Washington uh, State this year? No, 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 no. The, the whole game is you support 
uh, a carbon tax in theory, just the right carbon tax. But the problem is that no actual policy proposed at any level anywhere is quite the right one. Uh-huh. So, so even as big oil is saying nice things on a national stage and making sort of supportive noises and trying to sort of uh, frame itself as a constructive partner in this, down at the state level on the ground and the nitty-gritty, they are showing their true colors, i.e., big oil has raised $26 million to fight this initiative in Washington State. That is the most money that's ever been spent mm-hmm. on an initiative campaign in this state. It breaks the previous record by $4 million, and it's still rising. Mm-hmm. So, and this, is, and this is 99% of that money. Almost literally all of it is coming from out-of-state oil companies. It's got nothing to do with Washingtonians. Like it's Coke, it's Coke Industries Inc. and and uh, Chevron, you know, mm-hmm. and and companies like that who have raised a, this historic sum of money to just crush this thing absolutely before it gets anywhere. That's, you know, if you want to know what they're doing uh with their actual money, 26 million to crush and a, 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 a small and already underdog initiative in a small state, you know, relative to one million to supposedly support this uh, national carbon tax. I think that says everything you need to know about their priority. Yeah, it does. Uh, not even cl- the yes on uh, 1631 campaign has not even come, of course, anywhere close to raising that kind of, you know, tw- $26 million. Therefore, I'm going to point people to Don't Spoil WA. That's Don't Spoil Washington dot org. That's the yes on 1631 campaign in support of this. Uh, but uh, very quickly, how are the what are the prospects at this point? You're in Seattle. Uh, as far as you can tell, uh, what are the prospects for this initiative? Uh, less than you know, about one week out. <laughs> as, far, as far as anyone can tell, no one knows. I mean, really, no one knows. Polling? It is really is hard, pol- to, is hard there, to tell. Is there polling on like, this? Pol- polling used to be, used to look pretty good for the initiative, and it has fallen since the oil companies started spending kajillions of dollars to carpet bomb the state mm. with anti-ads. I watched, this, I watched the World Series the other day, and it was just relentless. Like, there, were, there was a no on 1631 ad roughly every commercial wow. break, and I didn't see a single yes ad. <sighs> you know, they're carpet bombing. That's... So, uh, you know, and now it's down to close to even, and that's sort of bad news for an initiative, because usually when an initiative polls close, like you sort of have to build, yep. like a lot of people just break no kind of automatically on ballot initiatives when they don't know what it is and don't really understand. Most people will just default to no, so you kind of have to build in a buffer. So long story short, I think probably the odds, the Vegas odds are against this uh-huh. This initiative, it is definitely an underdog, a scrappy underdog uh, kind of fight. It would be nice if, I mean, the, the problem is, and this is, I tried to explain this in a post today. The problem is that for every one of these individual fights, on the pro side, you just get, you know, enviro groups in Washington or health groups in Washington or Washington, you know, uh, billionaires who feel good about this or whatever. You get this sort of fragmented in-state support, whereas big oil unites. All all of national big oil unites against every single one of these. So you're so it's just like this 
this complete David v. Goliath thing over and over again. Like Goliath strides around crushing these things with overwhelming force. Like this, you know, there's an initiative up in Colorado this year that would, you know, uh, uh, increase setbacks and reduce oil and gas drilling. And I think proponents of that initiative have raised something like $800,000. And I think the anti-side is up to $35 million or something thereabouts. Like, yeah. this is what I mean. They just come in with a cannon to crush a flea. So unless the left, the climate left, comes up with something like a cannon of its own, you know, like is able to unite. Yeah behind each one of these, I just don't see how they, they, they ever have a chance. It would be nice if the left stopped eating itself so frequently uh, on these yeah. things. I'm going to uh, point folks over to... I wanted to ask you a little bit more about the uh, politics, but I, I'm afraid we don't have time be, uh, behind the Prime Minister basically staking his re-election on this carbon tax up in uh, Canada. Uh, you on write, the dividends, really. He's really expecting yep. those dividend checks to to, to work. He's really hoping they work. You you, write, you wrote about it uh, by saying that he's betting his re-election on the political salabil- salability of a nationwide carbon tax and said, I can't believe I just wrote those words. <laughs> uh, a nationwide carbon tax. I'll have to point people over to, uh, to Vox.com to read about that and why this is uh, such a landmark, potentially landmark moment uh, for a guy, uh, Justin Trudeau, who's in a pretty close, uh, you know, potential close yeah. race for it's prime tight. minister next it's really next tight year. and the carbon taxes and the carbon taxes what conservatives are using against him so he's he's I mean, this is brave on his part he's yep. doubling down this is political courage we'll see how it works out uh david roberts <laughs> uh, my friend always great to talk to you uh i'll point folks to vox.com for your continuing good works and of course for your always lively twitter feed uh, at Dr. Vox, Dr. Vox, as we call him. Hey, thanks, David. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Brad. You bet. Okay, I got to get out. My thanks to our producer, Desi Doyen, to all of you for spending a portion of your day or night with us. It's always appreciated. If you missed any portion of today's show or any other, download it anytime for free at bradblog.com. You can drop me email. I am bradcast at bradblog.com. And you can find me on the Facebooks and the Twitters. Not nearly as lively as Dr. Vox, <laughs> but you can find me at the Brad Blog. And my thanks to those of you who stopped by bradblog.com slash donate to support what Desi Doyen and I try to do here every day with your help at bradblog.com slash donate. That's it. Until we meet again, don't forget to vote. I'm Brad Friedman. Good luck, world.